Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Lisa Morton, the founder and CEO of Roland Drain. Dransfield? Transfield, yeah. Transfield. Thank you for helping me. Lisa, <laughs> delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you for asking me to join. Thank you. No worries. Uh, typical fashion of the show. We start with early influences, three, four minutes getting to know who you are. Um, I know you went to uni in Birmingham, but that's not your accent. So tell me, where did you grow up and what was life like growing up? Any hobbies, standout favorite memories? Yeah. So um, I was born in Manchester, but then I grew up in Salford. Um, so and I, and I grew up there till I went off to university, 18 to Birmingham. Um, in terms of the name of a business, Roland Dransfield is actually the name of my godfather. And he was a massive influence in my life because he met my dad when my dad used to service his cars. So his, my dad was a mechanic and he got to know my dad and he thought my dad's um, customer service and his quality of work was fantastic. And he offered him a job in his business and he was a Salfordian um, and had built a business up in engineering, kind of rags to riches and took my dad under his wing. So dad worked with Roland for a long time for, for the, until Roland passed away in actual fact and had a business with him. But I remember one day Roland came to my, my house when I was about eight years old in Salford and he'd always told me that I should have my own business because he said that the word job means just over broke. So he said, huh. so you've got to, if you have your own business, you're going to have some crap years, you'll have some great years, but you're in control largely. So I always looked up to him. Um, and one day he came to my mum's house when I was about eight and he had a bucket and a sponge and it was a Sunday morning. He said, right, he said, you're in business now. Go and wash all the neighbours' cars. And at the end of the day, you got to come back and you got to pay me for the bucket and the sponge. Then you're in business. So he said, and if you can't pay me at the end of the day, you pay me at the end of the next Sunday when you've washed more cars. So you understand what business is and you've got to break even to start your business. So anyway, I was in profit day one and I had a car washing around then till I was 15 and I started to work in a shoe shop because I fell in love with shoes. So he was a massive influence in me. You know, he was like the, my, my business. I mean, then my dad, obviously, he was an entrepreneur. But yeah, so I was instilled in, in business from a very early age. And that's why I decided to call the business after him. Well, amazing story. I had no clue that that was where the business was called. It. Um, <laughs> but talking about influences, that was actually, you've already answered the question. I usually ask people, can you think of someone who had a massive impact on you in your early life? And you've already answered that. So Birmingham in university, you studied, you did a, you did a BA in English and French. Mm-hmm. Was there a reason behind picking those um, two subjects? Well, I loved English. I always loved writing. So I loved literature. I read, you know, I've read books um, from being a kid. I was fascinated by different types, you know, different authors. And I used to also write and illustrate books as a kid, like the whole, um, series of, of stories mainly about girls being in boarding school I think it's probably influenced by Enid Blythe at the time so I loved all of that and then I just love languages so I chose to um, do French and actually after university I, then, I went to France for uh, nine months I lived in Provence um, and worked out there just in a local a local job but I actually followed I followed a boy there to be fair and then awesome. I found <laughs> but it was it was a great you know opportunity to use my French and I absolutely loved it I, I ended up though with um 
I think the equivalent of a Birmingham accent in France because it was wow. in deep Provence. And that's a very, very strong accent. When I got there, I couldn't understand a word. And I came home uh, when nobody who spoke French, unless they were from Provence, could understand me. So <laughs> it was quite, it was an experience. I lived in, in France as well for six, seven months and I came back not speaking a word of French. I, I, oh. I still, still regret it to today. Um, That's not the plan. How did you manage that? <laughs> I just stayed friends with the two girls I went over with and we all spoke English to each other and didn't bother. Um, what I'd like to do though here, Lisa, is I'd like to rewind the clock to 1989 and I'll tell you why. Because statistics, statistics show that most people start their business in their late 30s and I'm, I'm 28 and I've owned my own business for the last six years or so so I'm not part of the statistics and neither are you but I know that there's a gap between and I'm not exposing here but I know there's a gap of about six seven years between when you graduated Birmingham to when you started your current business and you, you had a, a, a three or four year stint in I believe it was ICA advertising and marketing. So the mm. question here is in those kind of seven years before you ventured out by yourself and started your own business, I'm assuming you had a variety of different jobs. Don't know mm. what the jobs were, but what skills or behaviors do you think that you uh, improved or learned that helped you going into starting your own first company mm. in those kind of three, four, three to seven years? Yeah. So, um, I my first job was straight out of university. I got a job in London, in actual fact, in advertising, and then I went down for the induction, um, which was a few months before I was supposed to start. And I was I couldn't. Well, in those days, there were no flat vowels in in London. It was a very different state. They were very. It, it was yeah. I found the whole setup there not to to my liking, and I always wanted to be a communicator and to write. So. Much to my mum's disappointment, I came back to Salford and there were no jobs. It was 89. I mean, it was in the middle of a recession. Manchester was still post-industrial city. There were very few opportunities. And I found one working for a one-man band after I'd sent off about 100 letters to, you know, various agencies, handwritten. So if you make a mistake, that's in the bin, you start again. Um, and my kids can't believe I started a business without the internet. That's the other thing. Um, but... I, you know, I got this job um, and then I, and I went on to get, I went to France for nine months and then I got another job. And the thing that I realized was the absolute cookie cutter. If you weren't in it from a privileged background where the connections have been made for you or the whole, you know, your dad could get you a job somewhere because he's been a professional background. Um, I knew I could see from day one that I would have to, you know, my lift wasn't going straight to the top in actual mm. fact. I was starting from, from scratch and that those relationships that I created were, were what would become my stock and my currency. So that means that you've got to be very focused on your values and showing up and, and having integrity. Um, I didn't know in 89 when I started my career that I would still have a business in Manchester, um, you know, 30 odd years after starting work it's just the way it's worked out we've now got an office in London and we've got an LA partnership but my my network are the people who have really had the same integrity in that 25 years 30 years in great in greater Manchester or the northwest in the main that's now extended to London um, and I saw in one of the, the small businesses I work for I saw uh, what I think is uh, the, the expression is that uh, long summer short career and that's, you know, if you want to smash and grab and try and, you know, take territory and have very quick wins, that's okay in the short term. You can make great profit or you can get the big job, but it's the long game that's going to keep you in business. And that I realized 
I think it's different possibly and I might be generalizing here but I think in those days I never expected it to be easy I expected it to be really tough I expected to have to do crazy long hours mm. and that was part of the attraction to me like that graft part so it was never an issue it was the norm and I think I would have not liked it any other way whereas I, I do see now we you get younger people who you, you know you see come into business they expect those chat those successes much sooner on whereas I can categorically say that it's the small things you do every single day the small things that you do without questioning that you don't ask for accolades for that that sustain you in a lifelong career that that's not just profitable but it's future-proofed you know you can we've just come through covid it hit us like a ton of bricks i mean our bit my business literally fell off off a cliff because of the type of work we did overnight but we kept going we kept being valuable we kept putting more in than we took out and as a result of that you know it has put our business on another level in the past two years we're at different tables than we were ever at because we had integrity and the stuff I learned being very young in my career that some leaders didn't show and some leaders really did show it's that stuff which is the it's the it's the, the magic dust really I think that sustains uh you know a really healthy um and long-term business I don't know why some of my friends who've gone into corporate roles nowadays expect to get medals just for participating it's, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, you're now the CEO and founder at Roland Dransfield. Rather than me tell the audience what it is, you're the CEO. The mic is yours. What is it that you do? Okay. So we, uh, we build relationships with people and we create connections and we help uh, put businesses and brands and individuals together. And the thing that is our purpose really so rather than people say we do PR, we do social media, we do digital, we don't. There are some of the tools that we use. But what we're essentially doing is the purpose is to bring people together and to help those you know, businesses and brands create more mm. good stuff, do better business by being aligned together. So for me, a great day is when I can put a business um, with a charitable foundation and those, that organization can benefit that charitable organization um, and that they can create a legacy together. So we've had lots of iterations of the business. In the early days, it was a traditional PR company and we would get our, me our clients great coverage in the media or we, you know, we would create an amazing event for them which would help their bottom line or it'd help push the business forward. But we've got so many more tools now we, to create those relationships. But I think after 25 years in a business, what people come to Roland Dransfield for is they know that it's kind of one phone call from the Pope or it's a phone call straight into the CEO or is it, they know we can help to create um, their networks and make their lives of their, their, the people that work for them and their businesses kind of more valid and have more purpose too. So that's what we do. <laughs> you, you, you've said there in the sentence, 25 years in business, that's, that's remarkable to, to achieve that. Um, this time of year, particularly October, November, a lot of CEOs sitting around the table talking about strategy as, as they go forward. So for someone who's been in the business for 25 years, as you think of the audience that you're talking to now being CEOs who are sat around that table, um, with all your experience, what are some of the blind spots that you think those CEOs should be aware of as they continue to try to grow their company? And by blind spots, I mean not focusing on lean generation, not building their bench, not hiring properly, 
uh, not having a common language amongst our team. What are some of the things that you think could hold other CEOs back as they try and build their business? Well, for me, it's absolutely about taking the time to really figure out your values uh, as, a, as a CEO, as a leader. And your organization may have values in place already. Um, they may be on the wall. They may be through the DNA of your organization like ours are, but they're more likely to be in a draw. They may, they may have been developed by an agency or a previous cohort of people in your company um, and they're not relevant. And if you ask any of your team to stand up and say, what do we stand for? They won't know. Mm. But that's probably also because the CEO or the leader of, of the business probably hasn't really done that work on themselves either. So do you know what you stand for? If somebody said to me, tell me what your values are, can you, can you tell them, you know, what, what you, where your boundaries are, what your non-negotiables are, what you will not accept as a leader or as a human being? Mm. So I would say at this time of year, you, hopefully, this is the only time we ever get normally an uninterrupted, an uninterrupted two weeks off, um, to do this piece of work now, really sit down with yourself and take that time to think, you know, how am I showing up? is what I thought I stood for and how I wanted to live my life or live through the business. Is it the same now as it was three years ago? Was it certainly before COVID? Um, that, that's the blind spot. And, and I'll tell you why it's the blind spot, because yes. we had not done that work. I knew what I stood for, but I wasn't, I was allowing other people in the business at that time, not with us anymore, to pull me away from what was really truly important to me. And as a result, the tail was wagging the dog and there was a an existential scenario that came up and I thought no I am going to change this around I'm going to really yeah. figure out what is right for me how do I want to come into this office every day this is my life it's my it's you know it's it's my creation and yet I'm allowing other people to dictate how we do things or what our integrity levels are so mm. so I sat down with the team um, told them that's what we're going to do and I said if anyone wants to leave you're more than you know you, you, you can leave it's fine no hard feelings um, but this is what we're going to do so I did get a, a great mentor to help me do this somebody who I'd met through football in actual fact he's had a sports and a, and a finance background but first of all I had to do that work on myself and I had to be really brutal with myself um, and to accept that because I had not really set my values, I couldn't be aware when those values were being undermined. Well, I didn't know what my boundaries were at that point. I didn't know what my non-negotiables were. So when I really spent time to do that, I knew where my line was. And then we moved those values into the business and we have made them the DNA of the business. And those values kept us going through COVID. I remember on the day before we were all crowded around a laptop watching the prime minister's announcement and we were going to be working at home for a day to see if we could all do it. And we'd had our war plan. Like, you know, if you go, if you're ill, what's your backup plan? You know, we, we were, everyone had no clue what was going on then, but as people left the office, I stood in front of the wall where we have all our values on the wall. And I stood in front of them for 20 minutes and I thought we might not come in on Thursday. We might not come back in this office for a very long time. But when we do, um, although the business could be very, very different, the values will stay the same. And they did. 
and they are the things that have made our business we're, we're in a way better position than we were even before covid now because of those values so that's the blind spot that was a blind spot for me for a long time and i think had i'd done that work considerable time before that we would have we wouldn't have had to go through that very very difficult time as a business which was very disruptive um and challenging to actually instill those values so that's the piece of work and you know what the clients come the leads come the connections come great people come the crap ones go it's it's the dna and you know we are now known our, you know our brand is our values that's what that's what our brand is fair play to you uh that can't have been easy it does sound like you were previously working in your business and you flipped that to work on your business. And as a result, you've now got a business that you're proud of. Very much so. <laughs> I have spoken to a guy called Eric Fullwiler a number of times. Um, he's originally from the States, came over to help set up uh, VaynerMedia, owned by Gary Vaynerchuk and a couple of other companies. Now he's going up by himself and he was chatting to me a couple of weeks ago and he said, um, 95% of B2B buyers, and I'm reading this because I wrote it down, uh, aren't in the market at any one time. Uh, and he, what, what he sees is that most marketers are trying to move people down a funnel to buy now. But if you go back to the stat that he referenced, that 95% of people in the B2B world aren't actually ready to buy mm. at that particular time. Mm. With that in mind, what do you think marketers should focus on instead of trying to move people down a funnel is it winning attention and creative positive positive connection so that when they are ready to buy they're they're familiar with your services and they go to you yeah uh, that for me i mean we're an independent business so you know I, I i don't have somebody sitting on my shoulder telling me that i've got to produce a certain amount of revenue i mean i know what we have to meet in terms of um, overhead and know what our margins need to be and I know what kind of profit we'd like to go for but more than that and it you know there, there is a luxury in this because it is a it's an independent business you know I'm the shareholder our our, um, our driver is purpose and what we've found in the past three years that since we've really focused on doing good business with good people that high quality of referrals I mean we are and I've read loads of these, but, you know, you're not supposed to re rely on referrals. You're supposed to have an active outward, you know, business development um, program. We don't, we don't really have that. We don't, we don't do leads gen per se. Um, we've tried it. I found it didn't really work for us. What we do is I would say that you're right. You don't get the conversions immediately, but by going out and doing good things, we do a lot of charitable work in our, or, you know, in our um, environment I suppose we're known for really caring about stuff so people come to us because it's all those soft things you know they might have an agency now we wouldn't chase that up but they'll just see we do promote the work we do but more importantly other people promote the work we do in our communities and that just does bring that work in so I get it it's work life is about relationships people want to mm. do business with people they like and they trust and that's how it'll come in and, and you know incredibly you know, we don't do, we, we, we don't go on a lot of pitch lists, if I'm honest. I'm not saying we don't get asked to pitch or present, but we don't, and we don't often go, we're not often asked to go on a list that's got 12 other agencies on it. it, it people tend to come to us because that's it. They, they, they've decided they want to work with us. It might take a couple of years, but we have got a big workflow now, people who want to talk to us. Um, so we're not short of that business. 
but again I have to caveat with the point that you know we're, we're an SME and I don't have to be pulling in millions of pounds worth of new fees every year and you, yeah you don't have quarters to hit as uh, or targets to hit every quarter as well you mentioned referrals I actually think very few people are good at asking for them very few ask for them and that those that ask them are very poor at asking for them mm. um, because if you think of it you've only actually really and I'm on your side on referrals here you've only actually really got to make your very first sale and based off that you can build a business off referrals after that mm. um, you know David Sandler who founded Sandler Sales Training which works with most of the large companies across the world um, he's come out he's, he's dead now but he has said as well you know you've only got to make one sale which is their very first sale and after that you can grow a business purely off referrals yeah um, i agree with that and it's an interesting point because i think you know we have tried to engage with um business development people or organizations and and i and i totally get what you're saying because we had that happened to us that we did get through a linkedin um, campaign in actual fact we did get one piece of work it's only small it's grown it's massive it's become so big so i do know it works but it's either as a ceo or a leader if you've got to do that yourself even though you're working on your business, you don't really have that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's trying to find the right partner, isn't it? If we could find the right partner, I would certainly give it a go because I think you're right. The small things that you can create now, they can, over the next five years, they can change your business. You have won numerous awards. Some of the awards in more recent years uh, include PR Marketing Agency of the Year, Marketing Personality of the Year, Best PR and Social Agency Campaign. I could list many more, but the question I have here is, um, I feel like many people are uh, scared or worried. There's something that holds them back from putting themselves forward for the these awards. Mm. Having been on the other end of it and won a lot of awards, what would you say for someone who's perhaps hesitant for putting themselves forward for the awards? How has it helped you guys, if anything, from team morale or just letting your current clients know that they're actually working with the best out there? Yeah, well, we we did that for years. I mean, I think when I first started the business, I did enter a few awards and we won stuff early on. And then, as you said before, you know, it's working in the business, not on the business. So as we got a bit bigger, we had a bit more space and resource to put some of those awards in. But for me, it was, and we've won loads more since we did the values piece three years ago, because Mm. I think it gave us the confidence to really believe that, you know, we did know what we stood for and we'd are proud of it. But for the team, one of our values is leaders create leaders. And so for me, you know, that's the point that you can be a leader at any age, any level of experience. It's how you show up in life that makes you a leader, not, you know, how long your CV is or, you know, your, your LinkedIn profile. So we, we, we resource the team. So the team would say, I really feel strongly that I want to put this, you know, this um, submission in. So they would write this, the award. And then, you know, when you when you win that and you know that, that's been won through the passion and the commitment and the excitement of that person that's put the award in it makes it all the better and I used to be I used to be a bit dismissive awards honestly I did and um, I thought you know well Roland Dransfield used to say stars don't make a noise they just shine so I I grew up with that and um, and and so I you know it's but you know it's false modesty in a way because it's not just you as an individual that's not uh, that's not an ego thing it's for your team and I know, I know the, and, and yes, it does make a difference um, when you do show the, the, those accolades to your clients and they, you know, you can go into a, a pitch or a new relationship and say, we've got these because it, you know, they're from good organizations with great judges. Um, and yeah, it, and we do, we're very, very, we're very glad of the awards that we've won and particularly recently because they've been won in a difficult time. Mm, for sure. For sure. Three questions left for you, Lisa. 
is there a tool out there that you could not live without? And when I say tool, it could be a communication tool that you use to communicate with within your team. It could Slack, Zoom, Teams. It could be an app on your phone. Something that if it was removed from your life, it would cause more pain than anything. Apart from my new um, executive assistant, who I've just found wow. after 25 years, she's like, it's taken 25 years to find the one, which is amazing. The thing that I've found has been incredible is Otter AI, um, mm. which is, you, oh my God, that has been life changing. So I've got a podcast as well, which is called We Built This City. And that's uh, <laughs> com- conversations it. with um, Mancunians born, bred or adopted. And I started that just before lockdown, before I knew there was going to be a lockdown. We've, we've won a British podcast award for that. But wow. so I interview Mancunians born, bred or adopted and get them to tell, talk about their values, their relationships and purpose. But for me to prepare for those, like you've done a lot of prep for this, I found um, Otter and I can just, all my questions, all my ideas go into that and it just literally transcribes it all and I can edit it a little bit and it saves hours and hours of my time. So the whole team is now obsessed with it. Here's here's one fear that you might get obsessed with then because I've had this podcast for a while and I use a tool called Descript.ai. Um, okay. What it will do, and only because you said Mancunians, and I don't know if that's your target audience, but I'm sure I have an accent to you. Um, <laughs> it removes all the ums, the ahs, the buts, the maybes uh, instantly. So you load up your audio version of your podcast to Descript.ai and then it will come with a written template of everything and it will highlight all the little ums and ahs and things and you press one button and it removes them instantly but it doesn't change anything with the podcast so you know wow. you're taking four or five minutes out of it we're removing all those pauses but it still oh, keeps the podcast well i'm gonna look into that and that's amazing does it take out the accent does it understand accents because the one i've otter is american so if i say mancunians which i say a lot obviously yeah. uh with it being about manchester it comes up as monkey onions which is up monkey is a really obviously mancunian word but it's monkey onions and yeah. um our mayor is called Andy Burnham and it comes up as Randy Burner. So it'd oh be great to go. Well, with the script, uh, and I know this because I've done it, where it gives you a script and it takes about five to 10 minutes to read it. And once you've read it, it will recognize your voice and it will be able to better script out what you're saying than any of those other tools like otter.ai. I, I have used otter.ai and I know people who still use it, but I just prefer the script because it's otter.ai plus the ability right. to remove all the filler words as well. I'm Definitely on it straight away. It Definitely, thank you. <laughs> no worries. Two final questions for you, Lisa. This one usually throws people, uh, usually gets them to think for a second or two, so don't worry if you have the pause, but what's your personal definition of success? Yeah, my, well, my personal definition of success is that when at the end of the day, I feel that I've created some magic by getting people together that perhaps didn't know each other before, but when they meet each other, they realise the you know the enormity of what they can achieve can achieve by putting their skill sets and their connections together i like it and you didn't have to pause as well which is a good thing that <laughs> you know what success means to you yeah um, final question for you you're in charge of adding a mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum what would you add and why i would add to it building relationships and the importance of putting in more than you take out so that is about sustaining a, it doesn't necessarily be, need to be professional, but in your life, it's like the, the bank account. 
if you put stuff in more in than you take out, you can afford to take some credits at times when debts, you can afford to take some deficit times when they're yeah. difficult. And I think that also helps young people to understand that it's not, you know, it's not all about what you can get today. It's about what you can give today, but then what you will get down the line as a result of putting that work in. I was going to say you'd make a great podcast host, but I can see why you're a good podcast host now. <laughs> Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I'll leave links to both your personal LinkedIn and the company website below if anybody wants to get in contact. But for today, thanks a million and have a great weekend. Thank you. If your metro don't trust you, I'm gonna show you. Beautiful morning, get a sun in my morning bed.